all across America and around the world. This is Veterans Radio. This is Veterans Radio. Welcome to Veterans Radio. I am Jim Fossone. I'm the officer of the deck today. We've got some great programs for you. I think you'll find very interesting. We always want to remind you, you can find more about Veterans Radio at its Facebook site or at the web. VeteransRadio.org is our new URL, VeteransRadio.org. Where we're on the web 24-7, you can find a lot of our podcasts there as well. We post new ones every Tuesday, so you can get a new story, a new interview, something you didn't know before by going to veteransradio.org. And before we get started, we want to thank our sponsors. First up, we want to thank National Veteran Business Development Council, nvbdc.org. It was established to certify both service-disabled and veteran-owned businesses. You'll find out how they can help your business by going to nvbdc.org. We want to thank Legal Help for Veterans. Legal Help for Veterans fights for veterans' disability rights all across the nation. You can reach them at 800-693-4800 or on the web at LegalHelpForVeterans.com. I want to thank everybody who uh, came out and helped us celebrate our thousandth program here on Veterans Radio last uh, Sunday. We were at the Sidetrack Bar and Grill in Ypsilanti, Michigan. They were a great host. Uh, we had a great uh, turnout and, and really <laughs> good fellowship, good fun, uh, good food, and uh, we got the the thousandth program in the can. So that that was pretty darn cool. Uh, I've got a good program for you. We're going to talk about a Medal of Honor recipient. I'm going to guess you've never heard of Navy SEAL Michael Monsoor. Uh, a pretty quiet guy, and family's not uh, really into self-promotion. But there was a book written um, by his dad, really by uh, an author by the name of Rose Ray, who got her dad, his dad to talk about it, called it Defend Us in Battle. I think you'll find that interesting. And then we're going to talk to what I consider a local hero in the, in the uh, metro Detroit uh, area, uh, Ike McKinnon. Ike, uh, you may know his name from the time that he was chief of police in Detroit and all the other civic activities he's been involved in over the years. But most importantly, we're going to talk about his sort of foundational Upbringing, uh, both with his family, but as importantly with the United States Air Force uh, that he served for four years, um, it really was the foundation of his uh, really quite astonishing life. Um, so I think you're going to find that one real interesting too. So stay tuned. We want to welcome to Veterans Radio today, Rose Ray. She co-wrote a book with George Mansour, George's son Michael. Uh, is a recipient of the Medal of Honor. And we're going to tell Michael's story. Most of you probably have never heard it. And we're going to tell it a little bit because Rose went through talking to all of his buddies uh, in the Navy. So let me set this up a little bit that uh, Michael Mansour joined the Navy, I think it was, in like March of 2001. Like a lot of kids, uh you know, he he wanted to test himself and be the best he could in service. 
and uh, made his way through BUDS and became a SEAL in March of 2005, and the action for which he ultimately received the Medal of Honor occurred in September in 2006 when he was on a rooftop post in Ramadi, Iraq, and we'll tell that story but that's the time. Rose, how did you get involved in helping shape and write this book? Yeah, it is a powerful one. Thank you so much, Jim, for having me and for, you know, kind of filling your listeners in a little bit. Um, it, uh, I've done a lot of projects. I've been in the industry about 15 years now, and nothing has been as meaningful to me as Michael's story to really kind of uncover it and now share it with the world. And the reason I even learned a little bit about it, took a lot of digging, Jim, <laughs> is uh, my husband is an active duty SEAL. So we're um, he's heading into his 20th year of service this summer. So it's been a very... Um, colorful and challenging uh, life to live, but we're so grateful for our military uh, men and women that serve for us. So um, he was at SEAL Team 3 when they commissioned this absolutely breathtaking um, uh, missile guided destroyer. I'm trying to say this correctly. (laughs) They call it a super stealth missile guided destroyer. Um, And it was named after Michael Mansour. So my husband was at the commissioning and he brought home this beautiful book, this kind of, you know, that says who the sponsor of the ship is. And, you know, there's a lot that goes into the naming of the ship. I, I had no idea. Jim. Oh, and I'm sure a, you've it, interviewed some yeah, ship guys. It, yeah, and it's a huge honor and, and to be in the, the one of the plank holders. I mean, the Navy has its own traditions and they're great. And, and so... That's they're what triggered, stunning, and they're so meaningful. There was something there that triggered, hey, there's more of a story than I've ever heard about, and you're in the SEAL family. Right. So my husband brings this book home, and I, I there's one paragraph. That's all it was, one paragraph. And it said who Michael Montsour was, a little bit about him, just a tish. And something went off in my being, you know, my heart, it was a bomb. And it was like, you've got to tell this boy's story. And that's what it is. He's a boy. He was 25 years old. And I'm like, who is this? And so from there, you know, God willing, I had the connections because I was a SEAL wife and I was able to reach out to Naval Special Warfare and they put me in touch with Michael's parents. And they said no to me, Jim, for two years because they're so private bless their hearts and you know they just had been through enough they had lost their son and it's been a lot however um you know i was patient but i just kept nudging and saying you you guys listen this is such a profound story we people need to know what he gave for his country right what he gave up willingly and so that started everything uh and then george was like okay let's do it and we worked hand in hand and one by one, his teammates, it was such an honor. I, and they felt safe with me, Jim, because I wasn't just a reporter. I wasn't just a random, you know, person off the street. I was part of their community. And I think that was the way that it was always meant to be. And I, I do, I just, I feel so, so honored that I was able to play a small role in now bringing his story to the world. Because George told me one of the reasons that finally got him to say yes was he said, my son was so much more than just a boy who jumped on a grenade because that's what the any person in the public knew him as. So this story really, and you know, you can attest and we'll share a little bit with your listeners, but 
He was so incredible. So it really gives people a perspective and a glimpse into who was this boy that made this split second decision that changed lives forever. Well, and one of the things, uh, there, there are a number of lessons, and I think we hold these men up who receive the Medal of Honor so that we can learn some lessons. And in the book, Defend Us in Battle, the true story of Navy SEAL Medal of Honor recipient Michael Mansoor, and we're talking to one of the co-authors, uh, Rose Ray. What, one of the lessons here that I think folks learn, and it's kind of interesting, Michael had asthma as a kid. Yep. And he had to overcome the, all the challenges, the medical challenges that go through childhood when you can't breathe, <laughs> when you have an asthma problem. And, yep. and you talk in the book about how you know, he got he he got into sports, uh, hockey, football, um, and pushed himself and pushed himself to get over uh, this medical challenge. You know, I think there's a lesson for all of us there, isn't there? It's so true, and um, and it you know. I don't think any of us sit back and think, oh, it's so easy for everyone else, but it's hard for us to see past our own difficulties sometimes. So when we're able to read about someone that we would aspire to be or someone who's done something really incredible, it just, you know, it inspires me too to be like, wow, Michael fought and fought and fought, even since he was little, to beat his ailment like he never gave up he had this unbreakable little will at such a young age and it it was it was so inspiring and then even before I jumped into really writing the story I had no idea that he quit once Jim being the wife of a seal like quitting is the worst thing you can ever do well and and that's Michael quit I think that's one of the lessons right we all hit those challenges in life and it's So, so easy to ring the bell, um, yeah. which you do to to get out of the buds and seal training. You quit, but he, he didn't quit. give up. He quit, but he didn't give up, and came That's back. What I think is one of my favorite parts because you know, even thinking about writing those words, I'll never forget that day. But it's like my husband just helped he who is a seal. He he was did this side by side with me. And um, you know, he knew how you turn and the about face and the just the devastation and the reflection in the window. I mean it's like you can imagine for Michael who gave everything he had to have to hang up and quit and ring that bell and be viewed by all of his classmates as a quitter. I mean that's crushing for for someone, but he didn't give up. He well, went back. And, and again, that's the lesson to learn. Don't consider yourself a loser. Figure out what you need to do to get better, to be, get yep. through whatever that challenge was. And you tell the story of Michael improving himself and getting through buds. He graduated, I think, in September of 2004 and, and joined the SEAL Team uh, 3 in 2005. But you got a chance to talk to his... Uh, Navy buds, uh, buddies, if you will, before he became a SEAL and, and importantly after he became a SEAL and served over in Iraq. Tell us about finding those guys and, and, and uh, in some measure pulling the stories out to make defend us in battle. 
Yeah, it was pretty incredible. The fact that, you know, and George was instrumental in this. He was such a great little partner. You know, he may not have done the writing, but he knew, he knew the guys and he knew, right, like here's his childhood friend, Rose, and and they just, all these guys love his father so much. So it was just a joy to work with George. He's super quiet, otherwise he'd be joining us. But um, so Jim, I was able to, you know, interview the childhood friend. I was able to, who also became a SEAL, which is so cool. Um, behind the scenes, little tidbit there, but, um, and I, Michael definitely inspired him in that Michael was a seal first. So, you know, Michael inspired and looked out for his friends his whole life. And then you read about these guys in the story, you know, when Michael was in Italy and he was in this waiting pattern to go back to get this second chance because, and you know, you hear, we put in the story is what he told his mom or his brother. He was like, you'll have to drag my body dead off the beach before I'll quit again. Like he just, there was no other option for him. And that I just thought was so incredible. I was like, okay, this guy's doing it. And so you see those friendships that were deep in there. I mean, this really is a story about brotherhood. If you can, you know, and father, father, son, you know, really relationship through how much they loved each other. And then this brotherly love and which ultimately grows and grows and then at the end I mean and you'll have to tell me Jim your listeners sometime but after you saw how much he cared about his fellow teammates I mean didn't it almost make sense at the end as devastating as it was oh absolutely and I think that's the bonding that occurs that uh, maybe the civilian population doesn't necessarily appreciate but, but I don't think we'll ever understand, Jim. And, you know, only you guys, only the men and women who have served in these stressful situations can attest something happens. Some sort of bonding and just, you know, love of your fellow man deepens in those situations. One of the things you talk about is as as Michael was going through and, and be, be, you know, became a SEAL, he wanted to go on to sniper school and talk a little bit about that role and responsibility that goes with being that automatic weapon operator? It's no small thing. I mean, the guys talk about the weight he carried, the extra weight. I feel like it was about 100 pounds extra, the guys were telling me. From bullets from his AW gunner, which was, uh, you know, you probably could go into more specifics, but I mean, it was a huge automatic weapon. And this gun is, is, you know, it's nicknamed, what was it? Uh, the, the pig, they call it because of almost a squealing sound because it's, there's so much force when they're, when they're shooting it. So Michael just took all that on, you know, and he, uh, he was never one to back down from anything. In fact, he would continue to agree to do more where I remember his mom telling me, Michael, you can't do everything, you know, because he just continued to want to carry the extra load, the extra weight. And then he had communications equipment and yeah, he just, he took a lot on, and which says a lot to his character. Right, exactly. I think this is where you sort of realize that um, when, when he was the uh, automatic weapon operator carrying the MK-48 and all that extra weight, there's a responsibility to the other guys because you're mm-hmm. carrying that weapon to protect them. And and it, as you tell the story and defend us in battle, the guys knew he, it, it seemed like the guys knew he knew he was taking on this extra responsibility to, to, to have their back. Did you get that well, sense? Look, 
Yeah, and look at also uh, the actual battle scenes in there were actually taken from after-action reports. So it wasn't like, oh, someone said something. I mean, these really happen. Like these, so with him, exactly with that weapon, he was providing cover fire. How many times? Multiple times that we shared in the book. And because of that, his men were able to get to safety. And the other thing that, you know, not everyone's going to understand the gravity of this, but he was a new guy. New guys are like, you know, the bottom of the barrel, right? Like all the older guys get fun jobs. And I mean, the new guys still can do some fun things, but for him to kind of step into this role and provide such wonderful, um, you know, tactical awareness and to do his job so well. I mean, it was just a huge, huge testament to him throwing himself in and giving his all because not everyone can step in and do it that well, that fast. It, it's one, again, one of those things that uh, demonstrates his character. Um, a couple of other uh, things that I think go to his character, which ultimately leads to him making the ultimate sacrifice. Um, his uh, commanding officer in Ramadi in spring of 2006 was Lieutenant Commander Jocko Wilnick. Jocko is a uh, widely known today, uh, you know, uh, uh Lecture, coach, uh, podcaster, personality about the war in Iraq and is a real leadership guru and was at the time. But I think, you know, Michael probably got some of his uh, good leadership principles from uh, following along Lieutenant Commander Jocko. Well, it was pretty powerful uh, when I, which I put in the book of the men when Jocko had asked them hey, I need you guys to go to this one area of Ramadi. You know, it's basically a crap hole. It's in ruins, you know, but strategically, it is a very important spot. Like, who's willing to go there? And what happened? All of those guys in Michael's platoon willingly volunteered, put their names on that whiteboard and agreed to go. They knew, they trusted, uh, you know, Jocko enough to say, okay, it's not going to be good, it's not going to be easy, but if you think this is a good strategic move, like, we're in, we'll go. So I, I just thought that was super, super incredible. Another person in the book that uh, I think reflects on Michael's character is uh, Father Halliday. Can you talk to us a little bit about um, learning that part of the story, which I suspect his parents knew nothing about, Um uh, when, when he was over in Iraq? Yeah, they really didn't. Um, it was definitely something. Michael was so quiet. They had His parents had no idea that he was operating on a nightly basis and the type of danger that he was. He really wanted to protect them, and, um, you know, I can't speak for him, but I, I assume that's why he kept it to himself. But um, so him, you know, Michael obviously wasn't, uh, he, he knew what was going down. He was operating on this nightly basis, but he found, he was Catholic, and he found this incredible priest. And I've met him and interviewed with him, and now I'm like, I get it. I know why Michael continued to foster this relationship. Like, he's such a cool dude. He's so masculine, so strong. And he was there, and he he was there to offer him whatever assistance Michael needed, and it, it really what Michael appreciated over there, which was strength, strengthening to him to do his job, 
was the sacrament. So Catholics use as a sacrament. So it was communion. It was Eucharist. It was confession, you know, being ready. I mean, the sad thing is, I mean, Michael was ready to die at any time. And I'm sure a lot of those guys were Jim, but it was, uh, it was this cool relationship, this almost this brotherhood camaraderie too, between this Navy chaplain priest and Michael. Yeah. I've had the chance to, to write on and interview a number of chaplains, uh, these these men who are in the field with the warriors um, mm-hmm. give great counsel, great solace. It's not always a religious thing. Sometimes it's just you got to have somebody safe you can express your fears with. Th- th- those chaplains uh, of whatever denomination are doing great work with our men, and I was really interested to read that that uh, Michael Mansour, this Medal of Honor recipient had that kind of relationship with that kind of chaplain when he was uh, in, in Iraq. And I, as I suspected, his parents wouldn't have known about it, but probably gave them great comfort once they learned. They did after. And, and he was able to say that to them when they had met him after he had passed away. And he said... You know, he died in the state of grace and, you know, for what Catholics believe with that, with the sacraments and what else. And then, you know, as you know, in the end of the book, who says that powerful prayer at the end? Who's able to be there and the huge commissioning of bringing his ship to life? But Father Paul Halliday, they flew him back over to do the honors. And I thought that was just so powerful. Well, sometimes this arc uh, is just perfect, and I think that was a good example of it. But you record a conversation that George told you he had with Michael. And again, the war over the last 10 or 20 years has been different because I'm an older vintage. You didn't get uh, cell phone calls and Internet, FaceTime and that sort of thing. But George got to talk to Michael and tell him, hey, don't be a hero. And Michael responded, I have no regrets. A couple of powerful statements. I know. And, you know, from a mother perspective, it's heartbreaking. It really is because all you want for your child is a long life, is, you know, happiness, is comfort, right? And Michael, like, turned all of that away, Jim, because he believed in a bigger ideal. So, George, you know, even to talk with him about it, it's so painful. But George knew, like, he knew his son was set was set to do this, was set to go to this war-torn area, and he wasn't afraid. He was not afraid. Go ahead and set us up for what happened on September 29th, 2006, when when Michael and three other snipers were were there. And I want to point out, it also happens to be St. Michael the Archangel's feast day. As we we bridge this Father Halliday, Michael's faith, the family's faith, uh, but, but... Tell us about this day that will always be remembered. So, Michael, you know, they had a crazy um, deployment and super high-tempo operating throughout the whole thing, and then they were finally starting to wind down after about six months. And Michael, being the, you know, man that he was, was aware of everything going on around him, and uh, he knew some of these guys were going home early. It's called turnover. Uh, I've done it many times with my husband and their platoons. Uh, so the majority of the platoon will get ready. They'll pack up. They'll get things on, um, you know, their containers to head home. And they'll start getting ready to phase out. And the new team will um, 
come back in. So Michael willingly volunteered to stay and continue operating. One of his um, platoon mates was having a baby. He was like, you know, he wanted him and to make sure anyone else who wanted to would uh, get home. So he stayed, and this was one of the last missions, which is just even worse, but um, it was, and uh, he was operating with, there was like, I don't know, eight of them total, I think, left out of a normal size of 15 to 20, and they divided into two groups of four, and they were providing bounding sniper overwatch for their band of brothers, in a sense, or, you know, the brothers in arms. It was the army, a first of the 506 battalion. And um, so they were down below doing what they needed to be doing. I think they're reinforcing some fencing with security measures and whatnot. And then Michael and the other SEALs were on rooftops. So he had three SEALs with him. And... Um, I think there's one or two Iraqi interpreters. Um, I can't remember specifically, but so anyway, uh, a very uneventful day at first, Jim, but then they started to take fire. Uh, and ultimately, which happened pretty fast, a grenade was thrown on the rooftop and Michael was the closest one where he could have jumped away from it, but the other three could not have. So in that split second, which is all that he had, he jumped on top of it and shielded the blast with his own body. He um, lived for 30 minutes longer. They were, you know, providing aid as fast as they could. They got him evacuated off the rooftop, got him as fast as they could back to base. But um, that's where he passed away. Um, but all of the rest of the men, three SEALs and the Iraqi inter- interpreters, survived because of what Michael did for them willingly. And he gave them a gift, just like he gave a lot of people who have heard the story this gift of, and, and you have to ask yourself, what makes a man do this? Right. And it's really a selfless sacrifice, and you end up giving this gift to those who who are spared. And you had a chance to talk to some of these men. Kind of relate how that gift continues to ripple forward. Oh, so, so powerful. So, you know, it's hard for the men he saved still, I would say 100%. They feel they feel a sense of guilt sometimes, survivor's guilt, because why are why my brother in arm and not me, right? But on the flip side, such gratitude, and they are willing to go to the ends of the earth. I mean, Mike Sorelli, one of the men he saved, his son is named Michael Anthony after Michael Anthony Montsour. And actually, there's a neat little memorial section in the back of the book that, yes, there's these incredible memorials to him. But what I thought to point out that the most powerful memorials right now are all of these sons who are named after him of the brothers he saved. So many guys have named their kids after him because they just loved him so much and um uh i would i mean and then it just goes on from there i mean you know with the building of the ship i mean you had middle school classes want to make videos who learned about his story and you had winemakers make a special wine for him uh, they made him an honorary chief uh, because if he was alive he still would have been and the guy who made the special it's almost like a shadow box but it's a decorative box he said no i want to do this don't pay me a cent it is my honor to make it for him i mean there was just so many situations jim of people who are so moved by his act of charity that they too want to make an act of charity and i just it's to this day still blows me away yeah in reading the book defend us in battle uh, uh, 
which is on the Harper Horizon imprint. Um, when I started reading the memorials, uh, again, you could at the back of the book, as you mentioned, you could you could feel how meaningful different memorials would have been to Michael, but more importantly, how different groups, whether it be at Fort Campbell or or uh, at uh, Pendleton or she's uh, in in the Norfolk uh, at churches how they wanted to make sure his name and his story and his sacrifice continued on. And I, so I thought that was a nice touch to add, add all that in. And So the sacrifice lives on, I think, in the sense of these guys and his parents and even the siblings, of course, they'll have a better, um, you know, because they don't know all the operations he went on either. They weren't Navy SEALs, right? <laughs> Sister and brother. So it just it just marries together so many wonderful stories and memories. And I think, you know, George will fight for his son and, and, and stand up for his memory his whole life, you know. And Sally uh, recently passed away, um, and they were married for 49 years. So that is very heartbreaking. Um, but what we do have preserved in the book are all those stories she shared, Jim. So many um, she hadn't shared with the world. Well, I think again a very another very important part because of you know a mother's uh, concern and pain you you sort of mention and her prayers for her son are just are reflective of what every mother is doing uh, when their when their boys are overseas or their daughters are overseas. So again, a great uh, a great story about a terrific young man who made the ultimate sacrifice for his for his mates um, selfless uh, act um, does cause you to say every time I read one of these stories like how did he how do you do that do you have who has the courage to do that so we're talking to Rose Ray and and she wrote the book Defend Us in Battle with with George Mansour who's the father of Navy SEAL Michael Mansour who received the Medal of Honor Rose thanks for bringing this story to life and and adding it to the uh, library of literature on Medal of Honor recipients it was my pleasure, and it's been such a joy speaking with you, and thank you for all that you are doing to bring awareness to our wonderful veterans. These Medal of Honor stories that we get to produce are just so amazing. We're glad uh, that you listened in. Um, let's have a few more words from our sponsors, and then we'll uh, listen to an interview with Ike McKinnon, Air Force veteran. Military veterans touch everyone's life. I'm guessing right now you're thinking of a veteran, a close friend, relative, Maybe it's you. Even the toughest of us sometimes need help but don't know where to turn for support. You don't need special training to help a veteran in your life. Even small actions can make a world of difference. If you know a veteran in crisis, please call the Veterans Crisis Line, 800-273-8255, 800-273-8255. A message from the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs. If you have a VA claim denied by the Board of Veterans Appeals, contact Legal Help for Veterans at one 800 693 4800. They're experts in handling cases before the U.S. Court of Appeals for Veterans Claims. Their number again, 1-800-693-4800. We want to welcome to Veterans Radio today, Isaiah Ike McKinnon. I could call him Dr. McKinnon. I could call him Chief McKinnon. Uh, Ike, welcome to Veterans Radio. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. And most of my friends call me Ike. 
Now, if we go back to when I was a kid, they called me Sonny. Oh, <laughs> so, okay. Oh, yeah. My, my good friends, they called me that. I grew up and they said that because I smiled all the time. Well, and you, I had a sunny smile. Well, you, you have always been known as having a good disposition. Let me set this up for our veteran radio listeners while we're talking to uh, Chief McKinnon here. Um, he's an Air Force veteran, served from 1961 to 1965, and we're going to talk about that service. But afterwards, he went on to be a police officer in the Detroit Police Department and then had the opportunity to actually become its chief uh, of the police department. He was also deputy mayor of Detroit for a period. He, along the way, picked up his Ph.D. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about his education. He's been a professor uh, around uh, Metro Detroit and, and is a, a well-respected and well-honored member of the community. And, and all of that started back in uh, 1943 in Montgomery, Alabama. Tell us a little bit about your uh, mother and father. Well, and thank you so much. Uh, my parents were terrific people. And I tell you, my dad uh, was just a wonderful man who was born in 1900 in Montgomery. I'm sorry, Union Springs, Alabama. And he moved to Montgomery, I think when he was about 19 or so. And uh, he and my mother married in 1938. I was born in 43. Uh, but there were, there were actually eight kids. Three died at birth. And back in those days, um, uh, every all the kids were born at home, but not in hospitals. And my my mother would talk about that all the time. Uh, and uh, of course, in 1953, when I was uh, nine years old, the family moved to Detroit. My dad came to Detroit, like so many people from the South, to um, uh, get a better job, and he did it at the, the automobile factories. And it was just a great learning experience for me, learning from there. My dad, who was just a tremendously religious person, boy, I tell you, uh, he did not eat a meal or or sleep or rest without praying. Uh, he was the most religious person I've ever met, just a tremendous person. Too. Well, that says a lot because uh, Dr. McKinnon sits on the board of uh... – a couple of religious organizations, and we now know where that all is grounded from. It's from his father, who was, uh, it's noted somewhere that I saw, he was a carpenter and obviously a tradesman moving to Detroit. But he also played uh, some professional ball with the Negro uh, League. Uh, is is that right? That's absolutely true. You know, you know dads, and I, I'm sure I'm doing the same thing with my sons, they tell stories. And my dad told the story. And some of them are true. <laughs> some are true. And, and that's right. So he would he would talk about playing with Satchel Page, Leroy Satchel Page, and and, and some of the uh, other great Negro League players. And so he would tell us these stories, and we sit there just totally uh, mesmerized by what my father was saying. And I'll never forget, he told us one story. This is this is probably the most incredible story I've ever heard. He said, you know, there's this pitcher. His name was Booker T. Brunyan. And he said, son, he said, Booker T. Brunyan was such a good pitcher. He said he'd line up three barrels between uh, the pitcher's mound and home plate, and he could curve that ball in between all three uh, <laughs> barrels. And, of course, when I'm young, I'm going, oh, wow, you know. And so I said, okay, so when I got – 
a little older when I was probably about 12 or something like that. I said, Dad, yeah, listen, wait a minute. I said, there's no way you can do this. He said, well, okay, maybe it was two barrels. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and so then he, he, he brought it down to one. But you know, he would talk about Satchel Paige, and he said, uh, son, Satchel Paige is the greatest ball player ever. And so I was a young police officer just before the riot slash rebellion in 1967, uh, the Harlem Globetrotters were in Detroit for a game at the old Olympia Stadium. And I was in uniform. I was assigned to the stadium. And, and, and the guest at intermission was none other than Leroy Satchel Page. And so I went up to uh, uh, Satchel Page and I said, excuse me, Mr. Page. And I, there I was in my uh, shiny uniform. He said, what can I do for you, son? I said, Mr. Page, I told him who I was. And I said, uh, did you play ball in uh, Alabama with a man by the name of McKinnon? And he, he kind of wiped his forehead and he looked at me. He said, McKinnon, McKinnon, McKinnon. And he kind of wiped his brow. He said, son, I don't think so. I, I, I can't remember the name. So I was, I will tell you, I was disappointed. Uh, and I and I said, well, thank you, Mr. Page. <laughs> and I said, I turned to walk away. He said, son, just a minute. He said, McKinnon, McKinnon. He said, well, uh, this guy, Cody McKinnon. I said, yes, that was Holy my Holy cow! Dude. Yeah. He said, he said, he said, guy about five nine, five ten, with huge arms, arms that look like Popeye's arms. I said, yes, that was my dad. He said, oh, let me tell you something, son. And so for the next five or ten minutes. Satchel Page talked about my dad. He said he was the greatest catcher he ever saw. He said he could throw anybody out at second base. And these are guys like those uh, those guys that you heard about back there who were so fast. The one guy who they said was so fast that he could uh, turn the lights off and get in bed before the room got dark, you know. <laughs> Satchel Page is telling me all these things about my dad. And he said this. Uh, he said, if the color line had been broken... He said, my dad would have been in the major leagues. And I was almost in tears. And he said, son, tell your dad that I said hi. So, Jim. That I, is wonderful. I just, so I, I, went, I went home that night, and I said, dad, I said, guess who I saw tonight? He said, who? I said, Satchel Page. He said, and? <laughs> I, said, I said, well, he told me about you. And my dad said, and? He said, he told me, you were a great ball player. He said, well, my dad said, well, I told you that all the time. He said, but <laughs> it had to be, he had to be verified by someone else. That's right. I said, I'm sorry, but listen, this is great news to hear. Now, that's a true story. Absolutely true. Well, we're, we're glad to capture it here. That's really a, quite a piece of the Negro League uh, baseball uh, story. That's, that's, and your dad has such an unusual, Name McKinnon's not all that unusual, but but his first name is that. It, that's what really triggered it. You knew he was telling the truth on this. So yes, oh yeah. So, so yeah. let's let's talk a little bit about and and I'm going to come back to this uh, the race issue, the the, the racial line, uh, because it, it's a recurring theme through your life uh, from even as a young young boy at 14, you found yourself on the wrong side of police officers and getting beat up on the way home from school. Um, you've, you've mentioned the 1967-68 uh, uh, 
rebellion or riots in Detroit where you were a police officer and the issues associated there. But before we get into that, because it's also kind of, you know, it's decades and decades later, but we still have this problem. Um, yes. But but we're in that period of 61 to 65, and, and you uh, decide uh, out of high school to uh, join up uh, and you go into the Air Force. Talk to a little bit about that decision, the Air Force, those sorts of things. Well, yeah, I grew up uh, in uh, an area, Bruce's, Brewster, which is uh, a project where Joe Lewis and Diana Ross and those people live. I grew up in that area and just north of there. And I will tell you, um, most of the young men that grew up in that area, they went to the Marines or the Army. And it was it was a pride thing. You would see a young man come home dressed so sharply and everything. And, and everybody in the neighborhood, they were really moved by this. They were very proud that this young man or young boy left that neighborhood and went into the, the, the service, as they would call it. And so I remember in 1956, I saw this movie with James Stewart, Strategic Air Command. And I was mesmerized by the flights and everything, the B-52, I think, bombers. And I said, boy, I want to join the Air Force. I want to fly. And I made that decision uh, at that point that I was going to do that. And so I, uh, I, I joined the Air Force after graduation from the Air Force. I'm sorry, from high school in 1961 and went to uh, uh, the Air Force. It was just a, it was a, a tremendous and wonderful experience. I mean, a lot of people hated basic training. I loved it because it, it was a sense of discipline that most of the young people did not have and probably even to this day. And I remember being in basic training and the things that we did, and I had these are tough uh, DIs that they were called, or GIs, but I learned discipline from them. I had discipline from my dad in particular, but not the kind of discipline that these uh, uh, DIs or the TIs uh, trained to us. I loved it. I loved the fact that um, uh, they were teaching me not only that, but love and respect for uh, the military love and respect for country uh, that I, I grew to be even more so uh, than I never had before, ever had before. Well, I, I actually think it's, uh, for folks who don't know uh, Ike McKinnon, have never seen him, uh, Ike, you were a pretty big guy when you came out of high school. I mean, you were six one, two ten, strapping Big guy, I can just see you. I can just see you putting everybody to shame at basic training down in Texas. <laughs> you know, and, and you start to discover more things about yourself because there are guys who would say things and do things, and I would say, no, no, no. Listen, we're here for a reason, and we joined this. We were not drafted. We joined the military, and there are guys who uh, came from various locations around the country. It was really interesting, and this taught me something about there are guys from the South, there are guys from uh, a student from Michigan, guys from Ohio, and guys from the East Coast. And everybody, we we worked together as a team to uh, to to make our flight, what was called not a unit, flight better. And and certainly, I I enjoyed it. I really did. I I I, I loved the fact that it was so much discipline, which I thought was important 
for us and for every young man and, uh, that was there and, and in the country. Well, it, it also uh, ultimately applies to the rest of your life, and and uh, I'll come back to your military in a minute, but, but that discipline would have gotten you through your bachelor's degree at University of Detroit, your master's degree at Mercy College of Detroit, and your doctorate degree in higher education from Michigan State University. That's discipline, right? That's the discipline instilled in you. Well, y- yes, it was, and thank you. But uh, let me say this. Um, what I try, tried to, to and still try to do at my age is to look for positive people. And if there are negative people, I, I distance myself from them. And, of course, there have been uh, negative people not only in my life but in things that happened with me. But I always look at – there's a song because I always look on the bright side of life, and that's really the truth. I mean, I always look for positive things and positive people, and that has pushed me to the point that I am. I, let me say this. Um, when, <laughs> uh, on the police department, there's, there's some negative things, but there's more positive things. And I, I love that, and I try to take that and share those experiences with, with everyone that I uh, came across. And it, it's helped me. Well, I think it certainly has helped you through your professional life and your personal life. But I'm going to slide back to a, a three years that you spent in Minot Air Force Base in North Dakota. <laughs> now, uh, when, when, when you saw a, uh, a strategic air commander or SAC base, uh, you thought, well, this is glamorous. Minot, uh, North Dakota, not all that glamorous, is it? No, but, but yes, you're right. But the, the, the slogan is, why not Minot? But it's, 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 it's interesting that because that's what I fell in love with in 56 about being in the Air Force and, and, uh, the possibility of flying. And so I, but I didn't know it would be as cold as it was in, in North That's Florida. right. Yeah. Yeah. But, but I got there and I was assigned, I was a, a, a machinist and I worked on B-52s. I worked on KC-135s. I worked on the F, uh, F-100s, F-105s, and I loved this. I absolutely loved this because at that time, uh, here I am, this young man, 17, 18, 19 years of age, and I'm doing this, uh, number one, in, in the military, but number two for my country. And, I'm, and, and this is uh, during the miss, Cuban Missile Crisis, and uh, we were prepared to do whatever it took to um, – uh, to protect our country, and I, I loved being an active part of this, Jim. I really did. Well, you were also given, and I think this is one of these things maybe kids thinking about uh, joining up maybe don't have an appreciation of. You were given a lot of responsibility. When you're the machinist or mechanic on a B-52, you're working <laughs> on hundreds of millions of dollars of equipment, right? You, you'd never see that kind of responsibility in the civilian Absolutely. world. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, Think about, and, and, and working on the missiles, the GAM-77 missile, I would work on these things. And I, I, when I, we go out now and we see these guys working on these, what they call cherry pickers, they're, they're working on trees. And I, I operated that to get up uh, on the uh, vertical stabilizer or the horizontal stabilizer of a B-52 or KC-135. I worked on those, or a GAM-77 missile. Now, you know, the GAM-77 missile, I mean, these are powerful things. And the B-52s were even more powerful. 
And I worked on these things as a young airman. And the, the longer I stayed in the military, the more uh, responsibility I had in terms of making sure that these uh, armaments were prepared to go and protect our country. And I, I, I thought it was one of the best things one could ever imagine. Well, one of the challenges, uh, and particularly at that time, you mentioned the Cuban Missile Crisis, uh, certainly puts in context uh, one's role in the Air Force. But Vietnam's going on as well, and, and uh, uh, in, 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 in all their wisdom, they decided to, to send you over to Da Nang. Talk to us a little about your year in Vietnam. Well, it's really interesting for me uh, because it was Vietnam, but it was not a war war Vietnam. It was a situation in which um, I, I thought I was going to spend my four years in uh, North Dakota and I get my orders to go to uh, Vietnam. And I remember one of the, uh, I, I had a part-time job working in the commissary and one of the ladies who worked the register, she scared me to death. She said, you know, if you go over there, they have these leeches and they'll suck the blood out of you. <laughs> And I'm going, oh, my God. She goes, yeah, she said, I heard. Well, she was wrong. You know, she was, these stories about the the GIs over there, the leeches and everything. And so, but that was, anyway, so I, 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 I remember I had a flight from Detroit to Traverse Air Force Base in California, from that to Hickam in uh, Honolulu, from, from there to Guam, from Guam to the Philippines, from the Philippines uh, to uh, Continental Air Base. And this, I think it was about 23 hours. <laughs> you know, I did not sleep the entire time. Anyway, so I got, I remember I got off the plane in Saigon and I stepped off and that heat hit me. And I went, oh my God, I'm not going to make it. I'm not going to make a year over here. You, you, you thought know? my not didn't sound so bad anymore, right? <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's right. I, it, it was hot. I mean, it was steaming hot, you know? And so I said, well, maybe it'll take time, but I, I, there's no, anyway. So, uh, I was in, uh, Saigon for two days and then uh, I went up to, uh, Da Nang and, the name at the time I got there, I think I had about six or seven hundred uh, guys. We had Army, uh, Marines, and Air Force. The Air Force, we had our F-105s, F-100s, uh, and we had the C-123s, the C-130s, because I worked on those. And at that time, it was not the kind of war that we, we grew to, to know about it. Anyway, so we had a, a, a what we call a containment area that had wire around it, and the Marines, thank God, and the Army, thank God, they were there to protect us and the airplanes. And so uh, uh, I grew to love and respect the military even more because of uh, the the service that they were doing and the protection that they had for us guys in the Air Force. And uh, we, we all became even better friends. Uh, the name was just an incredible place, in particular when you went downtown uh, to uh, the, the uh, just walk around and see uh, this this beautiful place. It was a beautiful place, uh, and I, I always told my 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 sons, in particular my youngest son, I said one day I want to go back there. My youngest son, he said, Dad, I want to take you back there one day. I'm still waiting on that. <laughs> well, tell them, to, tell them to hurry up because you want you want to go. And and I think one of the things that you 
it, it sounds like you got out of your military service, and, and we sort of joke about this in the Navy, right? You saw the world, and you that's right. You, you oh, came yeah. back to Detroit with a whole, I suspect, a yeah. whole different yeah. view of not only your country but your world. That's absolutely true. And, and the travels that I did, I mean, when I was in Vietnam, I went back to the Philippines. I went to Thailand, uh, again, back to Guam and uh, Wake Island. I think we were also there. But it, it was it was I learned to try and learn from people. And I, one of the things in Vietnam that really stood out for me, one of the, uh, the people who worked at uh, we had a little uh, restaurant that we had built over there and we hired some of the locals and this woman one day she didn't show up for work and I said to her husband who also worked on the base I said uh, where is Tho? Tho was her name he said our baby died I went oh my god it's the baby he said yeah uh, he said uh, my son Tan T-H-A-N-H was five years old and I said, uh, is there a funeral? He's, and he said this to me. Uh, he said, you come to funeral? I said, yes. Uh, so he said, funeral is tomorrow. And I got their address. And Jim, I, I uh, took the, uh, uh, we had the Air Force bus that took us downtown. And I walked to their house. And they had the baby's funeral uh, in the house. And they were just moved that here's this guy, this young man. Uh, from Michigan, from America, uh, coming to their son's funeral. And I had, I'd never seen anything like this in my life before. Uh, one of the interesting, not one, but one of the most interesting things is there's this young baby who I think he was five years old. He was lying in the bed. There wasn't a coffin, but he's lying and his eyes are open. And I said, uh, his eyes, why? And they said, uh, our belief is that uh, as you go into the great beyond, you go to God, you, you want you to see. And I said, wow, wow, you know, and, and it, was, it was just so moving to have that. And at the same time, um, the priest who uh, was on the base, he said, Ike, I want you to go down uh, to this village with me, and uh, I want you to help me. It was a Saturday morning. I said, what do you want me to do, Father? He said, um, uh, there's an orphanage there. He said, we have some work to do. So me, him, and another uh, GI went to the orphanage outside of Da Nang. <laughs> you, know, you, don't, you don't think about dying at this time. You think about the life of what you're doing. So we get there, and this, I think there are three nuns that, that had probably 75 to 100 babies, orphans, there. And they needed help feeding and holding the babies. And one of the most rewarding things that ever happened to me was I was able to hold these, these crying babies and feed them and, and just uh, hold them and make them feel better. And we, all, we worked and, and built uh, little huts for them to stay in. That was probably the most rewarding thing that happened to me over in Vietnam. Well, it's one of those things where if you open your heart up, right, uh, all you, you, you can experience and learn all kinds of things. And, and it's yes. not necessarily book experience, it's life experience. And I, I, I really believe that the military is 
should be is the basic foundation for setting a person's life on the right path with the discipline for learning to care for people, learning to care for yourself. Uh, and I think it, it prepares you for the rest of your life. I mean, here I am, 79 years old, and still remembering and thinking about the things that occurred with my life as a, a young boy uh, wanting to go into the military, seeing uh, people who were in that, being a part of that organization, and even now uh, saying, this is what I believe, I really believe this. Every young man and woman uh, should go into the military and and for a period of time for the discipline uh, to set uh, uh, their lives in a, in a great direction. Pretty powerful story by Ike McKinnon and words of wisdom. Before we get out of here, I want to remind you that our sponsor, nvbdc.org, has an upcoming networking event in Detroit on August 10th at 2023 here at the Federal Reserve Bank with all kinds of folks coming in. So go to nvbdc.org and sign up for that. Again, thanks for listening to Veterans Radio. We always uh, appreciate your attention. You can go to the Facebook site. You can go to uh, veteransradio.org. You can listen to our podcasts. We really try to keep you informed on what's happening uh, of issues and stories that might be of interest, like we did with the Medal of Honor and like we did with the experiences of Chief Ike McKinnon. So these are all things that we bring to you because of our sponsors. And again, go to nvbdc.org to see, check out what they've got going on their networking event on August 10th. Uh, Dale will be back uh, soon. Uh, he's doing a little R&R this summer, so we're glad for that. And until next time, this is Jim Fossone with VeteransRadio.org. You are dismissed. <laughs>